The following content is meant purely for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. This is the Fundamentals Podcast, where we demystify crypto and help you navigate this ever-evolving internet native economy. In this episode of the Fundamentals Podcast, we're joined by Chris Abiad, the founder of Friends Capital, a thesis-driven investment fund focused on liquid digital assets. Their strategy is to make long-only investments based on fundamentals and the core principles of value investing. In this episode with Chris, we discuss Friends Capital and break down their investment strategy. We discuss what makes Web3 interesting from an investor's point of view, and we also break down liquid venture and why it is a superior form of investing compared to traditional VC. We speak about the differences between Web2 and Web3 business models and moats, and also speak about some 0 to 1 tech unlocks that could open up the space for mass adoption. In addition, we get to hear what Chris is most excited about in this space right now, and much more. So tune in for a great discussion about the fundamentals of value investing in crypto. I don't know about you, but I woke up feeling pretty bullish today, actually. I don't know, this this market really gets my emotions going <laughs> up and down but today i had a, like a very optimistic feeling i think this is my like fourth pod recording uh, of the week and just like the builders and how everyone is feeling right now i feel like the past few weeks the momentum has like shifted in, in the right direction i don't know how, how you're how you're feeling right now in general about the market optimistic just from a macro standpoint but i think that uh, the heartbeat of crypto uh is not missed the beat really like even throughout the bear going to conferences and meeting builders, meeting teams, it seemed like everybody's still shipping, the, the, the environment gets harder and it basically creates a survival of the fittest environment, which is good for, for crypto. I love that. that. That's like really well framed. I know that sometimes, you know, I wake up, something happens in the market and I just feel like almost like embarrassed, you know, just pulling my cap down on top of my eyes. Like, okay, just got to focus on what matters. It's fundamentals. That's why it's like engraved onto my cap and I'm excited to chat with you. So. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Fundamentals Podcast. This is going to be a fun session to dive into Friends Capital and why you are in this space as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on this story. Now, uh, before we dive into Friends and just crypto in general and what makes it unique from an investor's perspective, could you give a quick introduction to yourself and your background? So how, how you got to where you are now? Absolutely. I'm Chris Abia, the founder and general partner at Friends Capital. Fell down the crypto rabbit hole in an interesting way. I was... Uh, Attending Cornell Tech, I enrolled in this blockchain course. It was the first university to offer a blockchain course. That was in 2016, 2017. When I started the class, Ethereum was trading at $10. By the end of the semester, it was at $300. Maybe this is lucky timing, but I got fascinated by the technology, by the market, and most importantly, by the ideals that crypto stands for. Due to the ma massive wave of ICOs back then, there was no well-defined process to select solid crypto companies to go work for. So I ended up joining the data side of the world and, and AI side of the world where I worked in, in product and knowledge graphs and machine learning. My background is in Web2 as a product person, and I was drawn to the technical fundamentals of crypto as well as its ideas. And throughout my Web2 journey, I was still excited by the promise of crypto and spent my vacation time attending conferences, networking my way in, and eventually advising crypto founders on go-to-market and product. Fast forward to the previous bull run, I decided to finally make a formal move into the industry. And I was fortunate enough to, to be backed by a strong network of LPs and friends around me who trusted me and trusted my judgment on, on the topic. 
Yeah, sounds familiar. That's definitely something that I think a lot of people in this space can resonate with. You know, you start with your free time, just, you know, diving into all the content available, engaging with the communities, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where, hey, it actually doesn't make any sense for me to focus on anything else. I feel like the opportunity cost is too high. I got to go full time into crypto. Happened to me. Sounds like it happens to you. <laughs> We're not alone, but that's awesome. I love it. Now, at the moment, you run a fund called Friends Capital. Uh, would be awesome to kind of get the story behind what got you to found that and then also a walkthrough of what Friends is all about in terms of the fund specs and your investment strategy and all that. So Friends Capital is a, is a long-only liquid token fund focused on fundamentals. We invest using a three-pronged approach, looking at macro, looking at crypto sectors, and then looking at category winning projects. We also built a strong network of advisors and together we launched Alexandria DAO, a research DAO that aims to cover the breadth of the crypto markets. So I think that there's, there's two huge opportunities in crypto today. And first one being is that the space is not well-defined and the fundamentals is not well-defined. These business models are still new and the key metrics and how to get the data is still difficult. The second thing is that I believe that crypto is going to impact different areas of the market. Like we already see in conferences, investors interested in, in generative art and on Ethereum don't know much about NFTs on Solana, for example. And then folks in the Cosmos ecosystem do not understand the Bitcoin ecosystem per se. So basically, the opportunity there is how to cover the breadth of the markets. So when, when you say the French Capital is a thesis-driven fund, uh, the thesis there really is the focus on fundamentals, right? Yes. And how would you maybe elaborate even a bit more on what that actually means from your perspective? What, what are fundamentals in crypto? I really think that it looks a little similar to, to the lack of definition that the software as a service industry, that the SaaS industry had in late 2000, early to 2010s, these business models were not properly understood. And people thought that these companies were just burning cash and never, never going to, to see that money again until you saw these network effects being and just category winning companies and what to really creating dominance. So I think that basically crypto mimics this with the amplifying factor being that the data is transparent, the data is streamed, it's continuous and all the data is on chain. You want to see how many, how many users a protocol has, you can check it right away. You can get it per minute. It's much harder to do this with a, with a centralized Web2 company. But the, the overall thesis is that we believe that any asset that can get tokenized will eventually get tokenized. I think that by becoming tokenized, it will inherit all the properties of blockchains. Like it's going to be permissionless, decentralized, transparent, immutable. And these are extremely important properties that the world does not know how to value today. Yep, it's a complicated space. Uh, there's a bunch of asset managers out there who all have kind of eyed towards crypto, but then many kind of don't take the leap into it or it just seems a bit too hard to approach. So that's why we need asset managers uh, like you who allow LPs to get exposure to this asset class. Now, how would you describe the core problem that you solve for LPs? We had them outperform Ethereum and basically holding a position. We often tell our LPs that the ones that are not very familiar with crypto to, to invest in BTC and ETH themselves and self-custody if they can. Many investors do not want to learn about crypto. They don't want to, to hold the hold trades volatility and they don't want to uh, learn about self-custody. It's, it's still difficult to really understand how to stay secure and how to approach the crypto markets. They are also 
inter interested and attracted to the return profiles that the rest of the crypto tokens, mainly the underdiscovered tokens, offer. And that's where we come in. And when the time is right with, with proper diligence, that's where we come in to evaluate and take positions in underdiscovered tokens. So from like your personal experience, do you see that there is like a really clear demand from the LP side for exposure to this asset class and it just comes down to, it's just too complicated? Or is it more of still very experimental for them? It's not be a core part of portfolios. Like how, how would you say LP's position kind of this asset class right now? I want to say that every large asset manager out there has already looked at crypto. Whether they, they include it as part of their portfolios or not is a different story. We're seeing these numbers go up. But what I would say is that for smaller LPs, what happens is that crypto is very much sentiment-driven. As we see with the media, when, when Bitcoin hits all that high, all these, these magazines and newspapers and publications start saying that Bitcoin is the next big thing. And when it hits all-time low, it says that it's going to zero. So basically... Because it's sentiment-driven and people don't really understand what crypto stands for, the idea is that it's really enabling. It very much has to do with the liquidity environment. And as we can see, when liquidity gets scarce, crypto is one of the, the, the major areas and the first areas to get affected first. Yeah. And as we're speaking about liquidity, I think it would make sense to kind of bring up the topic of liquid venture, because that's one of the biggest differences between traditional venture capital and then venture capital in crypto, where in the traditional world, it's actually quite time consuming and complex to allocate capital because they're not liquid markets. You're buying shares of companies that aren't public, lots of pen and paper contracts involved, no liquidity available. It's just a completely different dynamic. And then what crypto introduced is that you have these same early stage startups that just happen to be public from pretty often almost day one. As you are kind of on the forefront of this liquid venture investing, could you give us a primer into what the main difference is between that and then the more traditional model of VCR and then the pros and cons of both? Absolutely. That's a great question. And I think first it might be good to define what liquid venture is. And I think it's it sits between the public and private equities slash securities space. And I say securities here because as we know that like we can't talk about liquid ventures without without talking about regulations and really how these tokens are going to be regulated. So Liquid Venture essentially enables is it enables investors to make investments in early stage companies while keeping access to their liquidity. And what it does is that it, the growth of a crypto company ends up following a smoother curve when the market is constantly pricing and repricing the value that this company is delivering, as opposed to the traditional venture where the valuation follows more of a staircase approach where often they, they double and triple in valuation from one round to the next. So. Besides that, it gives a direct back to liquidity and avoids undetermined lockups. This is what traditional venture is signing up for, determined lockups. It increases optionality, and most importantly, it allows the pace of investing to adapt to the change of pace and the technology in which they're investing. So I, I see traditional ventures is looking seven to 10 years ahead. This in tech is a very long time. It's very hard. It's very hard to know what companies and what Technologies are going to be successful in seven to 10 years. In crypto, seven to 10 years is an eternity. So rather than forcing a super strong timeline, I think that projects and investors can align on shorter time horizons and both benefit from that. I also think that liquid venture and this liquidity in crypto is superior for employees. In Web2, early employees often get binary outcomes. They either make a lot of money when the company goes public or they don't get much out of their equity. So a great company today might not be so great tomorrow since innovation is so fast. 
And then lastly, I'd say that like the crypto markets are 24 seven global markets that they have five times more uptime than traditional stock markets, but of course, way less trading volumes, but they're available 24 seven around the clock across the world. And this around the clock liquidity can offer great returns, but also comes at a high risk of volatility and downsides as well. It does. That, that is a really important note to bring up as well, that like liquid venture has benefits for pretty much all stakeholders involved. It's not just investors. Now, as a venture fund in a liquid venture space, when you invest into projects uh, with a long-term investment horizon, I assume you work with them to some extent to help support their operations. Is that assumption true? And if yes, how do you work with the uh, projects you invest in? I'd say the answer is yes for, for early stage projects, mainly because they need this active help more than larger projects. So we come in in three ways. First one is we can provide liquidity, mainly in the early stages of bootstrapping a DeFi or NFT5 protocol, provide product feedback, mainly related to go-to-market and UX. That's where I see myself with my background and experience as an extension of the, the teams I invest in. So I want to be a user and I want to be a liquidity provider and I want to give clear feedback to them and make introductions to, to, to help them increase their go-to-market. And finally, and most importantly, I think taking a position in a liquid token that we typically hold for a year plus is how we also help projects. Yeah, great. So long-term horizon in crypto for, from your perspective, it's it's one year plus. That's what we're like talking about. Yes, I'd like to, to think longer term, but it's... It's long in crypto. <laughs> It's a, one year is already long in crypto. Yes. Now this is ideal. It does not mean that as active investors, we basically, we grow our exposure or reduce our exposure depending on the liquidity market, but also depending on the, on the performance of these, of these companies. We covered quite a bit about what makes crypto interesting, uh, both from the aspect of markets being open 24-7, everything just being transparent and auditable, the liquidity aspects, how they benefit all stakeholders. But if we dive a bit deeper into what actually makes this whole sector of crypto interesting from an investor's point of view, what would be kind of the main topics that you would bring up there? There's a lot to say. I think that like crypto's ethos and the ideas that it stands for are really noble, mainly because it's creating a more fair version of, of the internet. And today, the largest economy is already the digital economy. This digital economy is growing two and a half times faster than the rest of the world's GDP. So what Web3 is doing is really making the internet more transparent, less centralized, eliminating single points of failures and single unappointed authorities. And that, in my view, is very important. A lot of things should not be left in the hands of just such a few people to decide. Uh, and that's what we see in, in Web2 today with big tech. They, they really provide amazing products with economies of scale, but they ended up, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, becoming the referees of something like freedom of speech of what's allowed to say and what's not allowed to say. That's true. And the, the kind of counter to that from, from an investor's perspective would be that, well, actually, these gatekeepers to the internet, these big tech companies who centralize everything, they've been great investment opportunities. You know, they're just able to extract value from everybody and anybody who wants to build something in Web 2. So when we think of like Web 3 and how the investment opportunities kind of shape out in that space, uh, can you kind of speak a bit about 
how you view web three business models compared to web two and how different power law dynamics uh, play out uh, between those two? It's a great point that you make on web two companies being extremely good investments. They build amazing products. And for that, there's no reason they shouldn't capture that value. Now, the thing is that have they captured a lot more value than they should? That's a question for new players to basically burn more competitive products. And that's what we're seeing in Web3. I think that like the ultimate business model in Web3 is the one with the highest product market fit is selling block space. Layer one blockchains are selling space on their blockchain for users and developers really to store information and run code. It's more trustable than centralized parties. And basically the success of Ethereum, Solana, Cosmos is already proof that developers and ultimately users want stronger commitments from their database and then what is currently offered. Now, this is, I would say, the biggest use case today. There are the biggest use case and, and business model that represents the largest opportunities. Now, there are other successful business models that have found strong product market fit as well. And I would say these are decentralized exchanges, NFT marketplaces, stable coins, and more recently, layer twos. And I really enjoy auditing this by checking the chain and looking at which application are consuming the most gas. And as you can see, this does not change much over the months. The same are always on top. And that tells you that basically they have the strongest market fit. What you, you asked about power laws. And I think that what power laws are is that they mean that a small minority of investments are going to generate the majority of returns. And so far, with the exception of a few tokens, it has been a consistent challenge to outperform Bitcoin or ETH. And that's what folks like, like us are on the lookout for. Using token Germany, by the way, we can already find the most successful business models. That's what they generate, the initial hint at power laws taking shape. I noticed the new market sectors module that, that you guys launched. And uh, there's a little stat at the bottom that calls out the dominance for every category. And these dominant players are effectively capturing the power laws already, at least from an activity perspective. And as I was looking at it, I was looking at DEXs, for example, Uniswap dominance at 60% of all trading volume. For Lendy, Aave has 55% dominance in active, 55% dominance in active loans. Now, there are instances where the power laws are even more amplified. If you look at Bridges, Stargate layer zero is at 90% dominance for Bridges transfer volume. Lido, for example, is taking 85% of every new ETH that is staked. Um, in fact, for this, I, I ran an analysis, but like to show that if Rocket Pool was growing at 20 times the growth rate of Lido per month, it would still take a year to catch up to Lido and TVN. Now that's 20 times faster, faster growth. And just for context, last month, Rocket Pool grew by 10%. It's TVL. Lido grew 8% by 8% CBL. So 20 times is extremely, extremely far-fetched and it still take a year. So what I'd say is that basically this fundamental utility that these projects are establishing is what will eventually generate the returns of these power loans. And while a lot of retail traders are per pursuing the, the next shiny objects, these dominant players are just continuing to establish their dominance. That, that is a really great point. And I'm also happy to hear that you found a new market sector module uh, useful. Uh, I was pretty happy to get that live finally. One thing that 
is quite interesting in terms of how the power law dynamics have played out in crypto is that I feel that moats in web two were much more clear. It was much easier to like build a moat with closed source development and everything else. Whereas in crypto, everything is open and simplifying things a bit. When you build something and launch it, practically anyone can come out and fork it and build the exact same product and vampire attack you and incentivize users to come and use you. But but still, we're seeing the number one players grow according to these power laws and capture the majority of the market. C could you maybe speak a bit about how you view moats in crypto and what yeah just in general whether there are moats and how projects should be thinking of those absolutely and I, and I think you're absolutely right about web 2 and the web 2 moats but I think that we're looking at them in, ret in retrospect and today for example if we look at social networks we can understand the moats they're well understood but from 2005 to today how many attempts has there been at a new social social network company so many that paid so basically Still, people believe that they can they can displace these network effects and displace these modes. And I think that in retrospect, it's we understand these modes. Today in crypto, we're still super early, and I don't think that these modes are extremely solidified yet. So many things can change. Eventually, with time, they will get solidified. So, for example, the players I mentioned earlier, these are folks that are crystallizing their modes, solidifying their network effects and growth. And what I see, for example, is that TVN has strong network effects and capital does provide some sort of leverage. It becomes hard to compete with an ecosystem that has a lot of value up for grabs by the best builders, users, and investors. And I think Lidl and Arbitrum are, exe are excellent examples of such execution. They attracted extremely large pools of capital to defend their offerings. They solidified their modes this way. And we've seen time and time again, users are not necessarily drawn to the best technology. They want to use the best apps and these best apps are building on ecosystem that have large amounts of capital. So can't debate about whether Arbitrum is better or less better than Optimism. But what we cannot debate is that Arbitrum has close to three times the amount of TVL in its ecosystem. That's a metric that we can, we can evaluate, we can see, and basically what this does is that it drives more builders to that ecosystem. So I think one important point here in mode is looking at TBL and weak stickiness, understanding how sticky is that TBL. We've also seen how easy it is to bridge funds from one ecosystem to another. And some incentive programs can be very predatory that can really push people to move their capital from one blockchain to another. So looking for looking out for TVL stickiness is going to be very important in establishing those modes. That makes sense. But yeah, that, that was also a good answer. I think the stickiness is, is pretty important. I mean, this isn't a one-to-one -one comparison, but if we think of like Web2 venture-backed businesses, you think about churn as a metric and you optimize that you just hide your cancel subscription button as good as you can and and set up all sorts of like long-term payment terms you don't have that in crypto as soon as there is a more financially lucrative opportunity for someone to switch to use another protocol or a better ux or something else a rational user would switch so i mean that stickiness is definitely something that you need to look at and understand what the drivers are behind it so so great points there one thing actually here People are products and habits. And I think that basically, if you look at, at Google and Bing and you were to compare their search results, you cannot differentiate between both. People wouldn't be able to call out what, what is a, a Google search result versus what's a Bing search result. Now, the thing is that because we're products and habits that we develop, what happens is that we're just used to Google and, and therefore we go to Google and, and conduct our searches there. So I think that while churn can be much higher in crypto, we're still the same people. And we're going to develop habits. And if we're, we're, we're used to trade on 
an NFT marketplace or on some decks and we, we build that habit, we probably wouldn't leap that easily. Great addition. That's how it is. I mean, it's easy to kind of try to over quantify and over simplify these things. Maybe like how I was approaching it. It's like, oh, that's how a rational actor would work. But you know, human beings aren't rational actors in most cases. So you're you're 100% right. But I think one of the biggest attractions in crypto from an investor's perspective has definitely been the fact that you know the world's most valuable companies are born during these major platform shifts. And I would argue that the shift to Web3 and to crypto is a pretty massive platform shift. When, when we think about like the biggest zero to one moments up until now, we have something like Bitcoin that unlocked digital scarcity, which enabled value to be transferred online without intermediaries. Then you have smart contract development platforms that came out and app chains, etc. So we've just gotten to us where we are now. But still, we're at a stage where, you know, we haven't had the big unlock that's unlocked like mass adoption and we're kind of still waiting for something to happen. So if we look into the future, what would you see as being kind of the biggest tech unlocks that you're most excited to see happen? That's a great question. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're absolutely still early. I think crypto has about 5 million active users. Chess.com in one day had 20 million active daily active users. So basically we're still super early. And I think that like there's, there's some interesting technologies that will, that will unlock the next wave of participants. One that I really like, I think is chain link functions. It's still in beta, but basically what it does is that it allows any API to get on board on chain. Basically what it would do is that it would take a lot of apps that we've seen in web two that have a lot of data to basically get on boarded and to onto crypto in a much easier way while inheriting the security from Chainlink. That's one that I think would create a much broader set of use cases and dApps that can be built on chain. The second thing I think re is related to user experience and account abstraction in its finest state, not, not where it currently is, will improve the UX by an order of magnitude. And it would allow crypto to, to actually significantly accelerate its growth. I think this is really the, the next chasm that crypto needs to cross. And today, asking users to set custody is definitely a bottleneck that we have for crypto. Now, I would like to, to encourage self-custody, but we should basically meet users where they are today. And I hope account abstraction will, will unlock this. I think also layer twos are so interesting. They're, as Ethereum continues to grow, its current limitations will be a thing of the past. Like transaction costs are going to trend towards zero. And eventually, like all these layer twos will inherit Ethereum security and benefit from an execution that has high throughput, which will also enable new use cases that were not possible before. The last thing I'd add, just because it's, it's very topical right now, but I, I think that liquid staking, but I don't necessarily see it giving birth to a new set of applications. I see a lot of people talking about LSD DeFi. I think of it as it's just DeFi or just a different basis. So it's not necessarily enabling a completely new way. Now, I think what it's enabling is that it's enabling new types of applications at a protocol level. And I think mainly the most exciting ones are distributed validator technologies that will increase the security of these validators without creating centralized points of failures and will really reduce the risks of large liquid staking providers like Lido. And I think also the concept of restaking and shared securities across chain, this is what Eigenlayer and Babylon chain are doing, is also super interesting keep an eye on.
Yeah, those are all really interesting things to follow and see how they develop. Even though saying that we're early has become a meme, it's just still factually true. I mean, from an investor's perspective as well, we don't have a flood of capital allocators in the space yet, especially when comparing to the traditional world. Whereas that's going to result in some sort of market inefficiencies because we don't have similar levels of investor consensus. We don't have similar levels of arbitrageurs. We don't have the same level of liquidity as traditional public markets, uh, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see from an investor's point of view in this market that they need to be kind of acknowledged? What What is the effect of the current market efficiencies and the state of them? The market inefficiencies I'm focused on are really related to to fair valuations of these of these projects. And uh, basically what, what they create is they, they create more opportunity for investors like, like us. I think that as the space gets better and better defined, the underlying methodology of calculating these core metrics is going to be more important than the final number that we arrive it's often difficult to agree on fees. Some expenses and DAOs are and projects are opaque. But as long as methodologies are consistent, like what what you guys are doing very well in token terminal, this data can be used as a good proxy for a given sector. But I would also say that while the introduction of revenues and fees from token terminal shows an excellent pictures of of some projects, people often think that we miss the fact that. A lot of these projects are still in their early stages and they're focused on growth. They're not looking to optimize their revenues or their fees yet, but they're looking to continue their growth. And what I'll say is that Kugas Topper Terminal, you really spearheaded the focus on fundamentals and financial fundamentals of crypto projects. It served me many times with, with LPs and, and friends as an aha moment for them to understand that these projects some of these projects are generating revenue, they're distributing dividends back to token holders, et cetera. So this, this is awesome. And I think that as well, Token Terminal does serve as, a, as an excellent project discovery tool and diligence tool. And as these metrics continue to get built, I think there's going to be metrics that are super interesting to look at, like things like TVL volatility, users graph data, the users in a given project's purchasing power, and basically better understanding of the expense side of those DAOs and projects uh, to truly understand their profitability. I feel quite privileged, honestly, to be in this position where we are right now. We're able to speak with like both project teams on a daily basis, get the really granular info on how they would want to track their progress, what the key metrics are that they feel are the indicators of performance in their business. We also have the other side where we get to speak with investors who are both crypto native and now most lately with the integration with the Crypto Fundamentals app into Bloomberg Terminal, also get the perspective of traditional investors who are looking at from how do I compare Uniswap to Coinbase? a public list company and, and you really need to start building like the valuation frameworks and the methodologies in some way that's comparable that investors understand them because the big capital allocators will want really strong and robust frameworks that they can just apply their own like investment processes to and as long as we keep the methodologies open clear transparent then the importance of this like qualitative context that we bring through interviews and different analyst coverage uh, which is coming to the site it becomes increasingly important but yeah you're completely right on uh, what you said there. And I think I, I just emphasize here something related to relative valuations. And I think that basically, if you start with Bitcoin and you try to determine the fair value of Bitcoin, there are many methodologies to do this. There are different reasons why it's very difficult to do this. And ultimately, all of crypto is in price discovery mode. And what happens is that rather than looking at the exact fair valuation of a token or project, it's important to look at the relative valuation per market sector and what are the catalysts that basically would make a certain project 
grow over their competitors in their market sector. And that's a better way to, to in my opinion, to, to identify the fair value of a project. Now, I want to speak quickly about very practical level of how you make investments. So w would you be able to speak a bit about your deal sourcing process, where you start from, how you identify potential investments, how you conduct due diligence on them and, and how the like final decision making happens? So then uh, I mentioned token terminal being great for project discovery because it's a great place to look at different sectors and the relative valuations of each project. Well, I think long term, we're going the same way that the, the SaaS industry has a plug-in play model where you really have CAC, CLTV, MRR, churn, et cetera, and equity evaluation. I think crypto is going to have the same valuation frameworks, even more amplified because you can look again at data in real time. So for these sources, I do start token terminal and I also look at other places mainly related to ecosystem that form around this, this technology unlocks that I mentioned earlier, right? Because I believe that these would really be zero to one moments for these ecosystems and what can they drive? So first thing I would say is that what we look at is we want to understand the business models. So we, we spent a lot of time on the sectors. We use macro to basically as red, yellow, green, light. We want to increase exposure, lower exposure, not be exposed, et cetera. And we focus on the sectors. And then once we understand the sector well, that's when we pick a winner or a challenge uh, in this. So basically what I do is that once I understand the business model, I want, I want to dig into the users, fundamentals, developer activity, the incentives, the unlocks, latest VC rounds, if any, and their valuation. And look at the, the ratios that token terminal offers as well. This is where I think that this is a good place to start by looking at a little bit of everything while really focusing on this. What I would say is that today, a lot of investors also look market cap and fully diluted valuation. And while these are two metrics that are super simple, but they're also overly simple. So what happens is that there are two ends of a spectrum. And oftentimes, if you use one or the other end, to calculate your ratio or to look at the valuation, you're probably either overshooting or undershooting. That's what the true valuation is. The reality is that how does the curve look in the middle? How are the unlocks looking and how long is, is it going to take to effectuate this valuation? So we have, as mentioned, we have a long-term crypto mindset and investment horizon. So we tend to look and to want to hold positions for a year plus. And more importantly, we tend to take about where the marginal buyer will come from. And it's usually where the most developers are because the net new buyer is probably the net new user. So, so right now, what I'm excited about is, for example, the growth of the super chain on Optimism, base, Dungeony, onboarding millions of users, uh, mainly really activity around layer twos. That makes sense. And I think basing this off what we've discussed in this session already, uh, I know there are investors who focus a lot purely on cash flows, but I feel like your approach is a bit different. You know that cash flows come into play at a certain stage and a certain maturity of a company. But before that, we're looking at growth stage businesses where maybe cash flows aren't the core indicator. And you also spoke about block space and the, the utility of block space being one of the things that you would first look at. So gas expenditure, which chains are having most activity on them and who is spending the most gas. So could you maybe summarize what the main KPIs from your perspective are that you really focus on and how you kind of rank them in terms of relevance? Yeah, I, I like how you framed it because I think that like 
actually cash flows are sector dependent more than stage dependent. So I think that if you look at uh, Chainlink, it's more mature than GMX. Its cash flows are relatively non-existent today. Its fundamentals from a utility perspective are extremely good, right, for Chainlink. Uh, while GMX operates in a different sector where cash flows are more the norm and cash flows can be realized right away. So I think that uh, this is, I will use cash flows depending on the different sectors. So for that, and really I think I already touched on the majority of the KPIs I look at, but I think in general, what I very much enjoy doing is looking at developer activity and usage. On the KPIs, one thing I want to ask is related to token incentives, because this is one topic where, of course, on Token Terminal, we have an earnings metric, and we, of course, showcase token incentives because they play a pretty big role in crypto in general. And our earnings metric is revenue generated minus token incentives, which would be the earnings of a protocol. And this is one that there is a lot of back and forth with different communities, especially communities that have lots of token incentives who might not want to see those as expenses to the protocol, how we frame it. So I'm thinking from an investor's perspective who is actually purchasing tokens, how do you view token incentives? Are they an expense to a protocol or is there something else there? I think that's a great question. And uh, I do see them as an expense to the protocol. So they're effectively doing is that they're increasing the circulating supply of these tokens and essentially diluting that value token holders compared to investors. So what I would say here is that the fine line to, to wall is can you grow much faster than your token emission? And that's that's a really good way to look at it. So it's it's kind of like looking at the traditional markets. If your GDP is growing at three percent, but inflation is at five percent, essentially you're not growing. So how can we make sure that, how can we capture that the growth of the network is in relation to its token incentives mechanism? So not because it's an expense, it means that it's bad, but it just means that it needs to, to be uh, justified. That's very true. And I actually just uh, two days ago had a discussion with uh, Kane, uh, founder of Synthetics, and that's been one community where we've been going a bit back and forth because they have a different type of incentive model uh, a little bit where SNX stakers are incentivized to stake. But then again, so SNX stakers aren't diluted away, but then non-SNX holders, if you purchase purely the token, then you would be diluted away, which kind of forces people who want to be non-diluted to stake, which also means becoming an LP and taking on additional risk. So uh, do you, as a venture, fund when you purchase a token are you able to stake it how, how do you act like within DeFi? great question and uh i think it's, it's an excellent example that, that you gave about some headaches it's the same case for ethereum the e token that's not getting staked is essentially getting diluted by by the rewards that the stake e token is earned so as an investor what we do is that we would stake a majority of our positions because what, what happens is that if you're long a given token you're long the project and you should feel comfortable staking a token if you're comfortable investing and run a certain project. Now, the thing is basically access to liquidity, again, could be very important. So you might stake a portion of your total tokens. Yes, we do stake. Okay, got it. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. Thank you. Now, I, I was wondering before we wrap this up, given everything we've spoken about your thesis at Chacha, would you be able to walk me through like a case example of any of your recent investments on what really caught your eye there and why you made that investment? I have pretty good thesis on, on Lido and GMX, but I'd, I'd rather skip these because I feel like they're very well covered in the market today. So 
with your permission, maybe I can I can speak about a token that I'm still developing my thesis on. Of course. Yeah, that would be interesting. The token in question and the project is Blur. And I think that what Blur has achieved in such a short period of time, a sector that has product market fit, as you mentioned, the NFT marketplace sector is one with, with strong product market fit already, is really fascinating. There's been attempts at displacing OpenSea during a more exciting market where NFT trading volumes were much higher. And these attempts have failed. I think what Blur did, what Blur is doing is, is a very interesting experiment that is yet to play out. But so far, I've been extremely impressed with how it's playing out. So as I start high level, I think NFT marketplaces have the potential to look like e-commerce giants selling goods online. If you look at the e-commerce space, Amazon has more market share than the, the rest of the top 20 combined. So if digital collectibles, if NFTs play out in the same way, one marketplace, one NFT marketplace could end up being a massive winner in the space, mainly because the network effects that it builds around its liquidity, lending programs, taking programs, etc., will be extremely hard to displace. Second thing I would say is the team has, has shown relentless execution. I've been, they've been shipping great products. They're accelerating price discovery for NFTs, whether you like them or hate them. And as importantly, they seem extremely well aligned to the ethos of Web3. Launching a token for a US-based company is, is not an easy feat, but really what it does, it, it allows their users to participate in the value accrual of their company. It's basically, it ties it back to, to Liquid Venture, where like OpenSea latest valuation was 12 billion, and it was for a close group of lucky investors that were able to participate. What they agreed on is an investment with an undetermined period of time. Mirror, that's where you, you still have access to your, to your liquidity, right? Because if they stop delivering, you can always get out of your investment. I think users and usage of key metrics are super interesting. I think while, while Mirror has a little more than two times less the number of users, it has about five times more the trading volume. And they've attracted power users and of course, incentives and airdrop farmers. The average user on Blur trades 13 times more volume than the average user on OpenSea. The very important metric to keep tracking is going to be retention as these incentives start winding down. But I think Blur is a, is a super interesting project to, to, to keep in mind and, and keep watching. And we're, we're slowly forming a thesis there. As the price drops, it's looking more and more attractive. And more importantly, I think that talking to users, they're really starting to form product habits about using Blur. It's the first thing they think about when they want to build a an NFT. They're used to the flow. Because of this, I think this, this has the potential to be very sticky. Thank you for sharing that thesis. That's, that's really interesting insight to hear how you're thinking about that. And I do agree, like their focus on more professional or more sophisticated traders, especially from the get-go, has been really interesting in terms of like the average order of average trade value uh, that you'd say that they bring in. So that volume and then just aggressively bringing down fees to kind of force OpenSea and all other competitors. It's been a very interesting market dynamic to follow. I think the NFT space, thanks to Blur, they didn't come to play around. So now I'll wrap this up with one final question. We spoke about what you are excited about in terms of the biggest potential tech un unlocks that could really kind of push this space forward. And also you're looking into layer twos, but on top of mind right now, when you hop off this call, what, what are you going to go back to focusing on? What is like the main thing that excites 
Chris right at this moment? That's a great question. And I think that I'll tell you what's super exciting in crypto right now for me, not necessarily right after this call, but basically what's super exciting. I think I'm truly fascinated with generative art. I think it's such a fascinating space. It's really redefining what art is about. It's creating artists out of designer, algorithm developers, movie, movie designers, by tokenizing their craft, mixing it with algorithms, creating something truly magical that we've never seen before, being powered by algorithms under the hood. So that, I think, is a space that, that is super fun to watch. It's super exciting. And we're really witnessing a, a little revolution in the, in the art space, I think. And it'd be really interesting to ask, like, do you think one day art, art critics are going to evaluate generative art based on fundamentals? Maybe. I hope so. We're going to start building generative art dashboards. Maybe that's next on Token Terminal's roadmap. Try to quantify everything related to that. Thank you, Chris. Um, this was a really great overview and deep dive into your mind as an investor in this space. And I'd say the biggest differences between more traditional VC and then crypto and what Liquid Venture introduces. So it's been really insightful. And I hope that we can do it again at some point to maybe dive deeper into the thesis behind some investments that you make or whatever topics as this space keeps maturing. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, that was fun. Thank you for your opportunity.